Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a quick note about the foundation. As you probably know from uh, other times I mentioned it, we've embarked upon a project to create a low-cost resource for people that suffer from anxiety and depression. And the way we're doing it is we're going through hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, books, interviews such as this one you're about to hear, et cetera, compiling it all. And our goal is to find every possible potential treatment for anxiety and depression that we can find and make that available in a curated, condensed form for people that suffer in the hopes to help them. So to find out more, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today, in the spirit of this project, I have uh, Joe Luciani. He's a best-selling author, a clinical psychologist. I have his book in front of me. It's called Unlearning Anxiety and Depression the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. So, Joe, thanks for coming. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. If you would tell me what interests you about uh, anxiety and depression and, and being a psychologist, like why did you do it X number of years ago? Well, I guess I always recall the theory of the wounded healer. And I guess I started out with anxieties. And uh, when I went to college, it was with the intention of trying to find some answers I was very serious about the fact that uh, there had to be something that I could do to feel better. And I gravitated towards psychology. Didn't help much. You know, you learn about the rats in the lab and all that kind of learning theory. And uh, you get all these uh, 101 courses. So psychology didn't really help too much, but, but it still kept me mired in the fact that there still had to be something. And talking to some professors and eventually getting to graduate school and sinking my teeth into more of the medianness of what psychology can be, I started to I started to feel that maybe there really was a way out. Now, I, I don't think I suffered from severe anxiety and some mild depression, but it was there and I wasn't happy. And it was it was essentially right after I got my master's degree, just prior to my Ph.D., that I started therapy with a traditional Freudian analyst. 
And uh, I don't know if you would like me to get into that story, but it has a rather amusing, disturbing uh, yeah. part of my life. No, uh, I, I'd like to hear because I, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about Freud, but I think he's become a caricature, you know, mm-hmm. of a Freudian slip or you know, being in love with your mother or something like that. So, yeah, tell me about that a bit. I don't know yeah. much about it. Well, I started out, uh, he wanted me to come every day, as most Freudians would. And thanks to my wife insurance, I was able to afford, she's a teacher. I was able to afford twice a week sessions. And I did that, I would have to say, for at least a year, probably more. And during that entire time, uh, it was that whole free associative kind of stuff. And there I was free associating, waiting for an opinion. And, you know, he would take copious notes, or uh, which I, I never got to see or know what he was writing down. But he sat there and stoically and he took notes. And the first time he gave me an opinion, it really startled me. I brought in a dream. And in the dream, essentially, there was a bug, like a ladybug on the, behind my knee. And, and he, he said, bolt upright. And he says, oh, you want to be intimate with your mother? And, and I, I, wow, said, I was right. <laughs> and I said, really? And that was where I started to have misgivings. And it seemed to me that, you know, I finally got an opinion and it was an opinion that scared the hell out of me, to be honest with you. And I started to really get uh, look in earnest for graduate work. And I found the California School of Professional Psychology, which really appealed to me. Some of the best minds in the country were founded by the American Psychological Association were donating their time and teaching there. And it was, it was to launch uh, a, an effort in terms of teaching psychologists, clinical psychologists, to branch away from academia and really the trade of psychology, the clinical trade. So off to California, I went, but there was a caveat because my Freudian analyst said, you can't go. I said, why not? He said, well, your anxiety is that you, you are not going to be able to handle it. You will have a breakdown. I wanted psychology so badly that I, I rolled the dice and I moved out to San Diego. So there I am the first six months waiting for the time bomb to go off just uh, every day, just his his words echoing in my head. Because, you know, at that time, I, I was young enough to feel that, you know, I, I didn't know me. This guy was the expert. He, he knew me better than I knew me. I get a letter from him I'm six months into my work at San Diego, and it was an apology. And he started out by saying, my analyst told me I had to write you and apologize for my counter transference. And and I think at that point, had I seen him on the street, uh, I don't know what would have happened. You know, it's a Jersey thing, but it was it was horrible. Did did the did the idea like start to bother you and latch on in your mind? And then I guess what he was saying six months later is, oh, it was really me thinking that. I just put it on to you. He didn't want me to leave him. Literally, and that's the, the letter went on. I mean, it was obviously more than countertransference. He, as diabolical as it sounds, he didn't want me to leave him. And unfortunately, at that time, this was in the early 70s, you know, the Freudian uh, therapy was the gold standard still. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have your therapist telling you something that is really bogus and, and fault, faulty, it can ruin a life. And it almost kept me from becoming a psychologist. So, you know, I didn't harbor a lot of, you know, I kind of let it go after a while I worked it through. And uh, to this day, you know, I do have not wonderful feelings for traditional psychology, even though I went into the Jungian Institute after my PhD work. And that was more of just for illumination. And just, I don't know any, if you know anything about Carl Jung, but it's fascinating. And his mind is just, just one of the wonderful treasures of, uh, I think, uh, psychiatric thinking. So, so Jung, Jungian psychology seems to work better and appeal to you more? And you've observed it works? 
it was more of fascination with you know the whole collective aspect of the unconscious. It, I, I became a psychologist while I was training at the uh, the Jungian Institute. And I, I found that it wasn't helping me serve my patients. And, and that's, that's really was where I came to the nexus of, you know, what am I going to do? All this training I'm getting, all this wonderful insight into this wonderful world of dreams and collective unconscious and archetypes. What was I going to do with it? My, my patients, uh, I wasn't able to apply it in any direct way. That's when I decided I had to take a leap, a leap of faith. I had to decide, well, what does Joe Luciani think? And I had to break away from my formal training and just try to look at psychology from a, a fresh, intuitive standpoint. And, and that's more or less when I gravitated toward this whole self-coaching, which, which in essence is a cognitive behavioral approach. But, but at the time, I hadn't read you know, Beck and uh, any of the others. And, and it was really a unique way of my being more direct, taking the gloves off, being less passive, and, and recognizing that therapy needs to be an engagement. You know, it can't be a, a passive reflection of the authority, the father, you know, to the patient. It had to be an engagement. And I, and I wanted that, that excitement and that engagement to take place. That's where I began to formulate the strategy, which I'm sure you and I will talk about today. How did you go from traditional psychology and, you know, being a psychologist, seeing patients, you know, and on the couch, et cetera, to writing a book and kind of expanding outwards and not just being a psychologist, but an author and all the other things that you do. Well, I guess, I guess the, the point, and there was a point, usually these things happen gradually, and I guess it did on, on deeper levels. But the point where I broke away from the traditional was uh, my cousin had called me. He, was, he had been to three or four different psychiatrists. He was on five, five medications. He couldn't get out of his chair. He was losing his, his job. Uh, and he wanted to know if I could help him. And I said, well, not as a patient, but I said, of course, let's talk. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what happened is in talking to him, I, I kind of abandoned all the formality of the therapist and sitting aside with this, this kind of uh, passive uh, and, you know, kind of reflective attitude. And, and I really got in his face in a sense. And, and that's where the coaching came in. I challenged his assumptions. I, 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 you know, his, the way he was framing his neurotic thoughts, the way he was torturing himself and getting away with it, you know, the ruminative aspect of worrying and anticipatory anxiety. And, and he was just going willy nilly. And, and I was able to really take those gloves off, get in his face. And I, I don't say that in an abrupt way, but more or less in an assertive way and challenge his thoughts. 
So we became very interactive. And, and one of the things that, that happened as the outcome of that is he, he got off all medication and to this day. And it was, this is back in the 70s. To this day, he's living a wonderful life in uh, Florida and had never gone back to medication. But he was the start. And he was the start that started to light little light bulbs up in my mind that you need to, you, need, you can't be afraid of anxiety and depression. You need to approach it head on and realize exactly what it is and exactly how the mind frames things to keep us involved in the, what I call, I know this sounds rather heretical, what I call the habits of anxiety and depression. And once, once I came to that conclusion that, well, wait a second, is this a habit that he just gets involved in this ruminative, worrisome, anticipatory stuff? It just seems to be almost an addictive kind of response. I wanted to interrupt that. I wanted to break that habit. And, and that's, that's what I said. Once I started to, to think about anxiety and depression as habits, we all know about habits. Uh, you know, habits are learned. Habits can be broken. It, it demystifies. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about moderate to mild anxiety, depression. Of course, with severe uh, anxiety, depression, uh, there is a need for medication and therapy, be, and it becomes a therapy facilitator. So I'm not opposed to medical intervention or psychiatric intervention, but nevertheless, the mind has to be trained or to unlearn the patterning, the habit loops that sustain anxiety and depression. And, and that was more or less the essence of where I wound up today. Uh, it's been 40 Wait, some then. odd years. What are the elements of a loop? How does someone get into a loop? And okay. I, I'm, I'm sure it includes rumination, but is, is someone falling into a mental groove and they're stuck in this groove? Like what would be a good picture mm -hmm. for what happens? Let's go all the way back to how it begins. And it, we are creatures of, uh, we avoid pain, we seek pleasure. It's in our DNA to be safe. We, we are born into a world that is, no one has perfect parents. We all face adversity, a loss, just various, various challenges to our growing up as a child. And, and what happens is we, in an attempt to, to take care of ourselves, we develop insecurities because insecurity is a state of vulnerability. So we are all insecure to an extent, some more, some less, but we, we grow up in a, in a challenging world. So to me, insecurity is an inescapable byproduct of growing up as a vulnerable creature in this challenging world. Now, what insecurity does is it promotes a desire for us to protect ourselves from being vulnerable. We do that by trying to control that which we feel is threatening. So it is the controlling strategies that the mind begins to adhere to. For example, worrying is probably the most ubiquitous. And we develop these strategies, whether it's controlled through worrying, avoiding, um, procrastination, whatever those strategies are, they work, or at least they work in a sense that they alleviate some of the loss of control that we feel vis-a-vis -vis insecurity. These become more or less habituated over time, like any other habit. And these controlling strategies will get us through most of our life. But the problem with trying to control life is it's really not natural. I mean, there's, there's good control. So let me differentiate wearing a seatbelt, taking vitamins. But we're talking about the neurotic control that's, that's inspired by insecurity. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's, that's where we start to try to control life. And we try to pick worrying, for example, everyone worries. 
Worrying is, is an attempt to anticipate what's coming around the corner before it gets there. Why? Because we're trying to avoid chaos. We're trying to rehearse. We want to be better prepared. So we, we don't trust our presence. You know, we don't trust where we are in the present. We don't trust our resourcefulness. So we have to anticipate life. And by anticipating life, of course, we get on this treadmill and the habit of worrying becomes a lifelong habit. Most of the patients I work with, you know, we're talking about people that have lifelong tendencies. I was just talking to someone in my family yesterday and he's 70 years old. And and I was saying, you know, you've got to do something about this stress and this anxiety. And he said, are you kidding? I've been this way all my life. I can't do anything, you know, and, and that's because we are so identified with the way we struggle that we just assume it's our nature. So so for me, it is very, very important to help people understand everything. When you break it down to the habit, and habits can be very, very uh, difficult to break. You know, just uh, trying to paraphrase John Adams, habits are stubborn things. And and we, we really do need to apply ourselves to breaking the habits that we are kind of mired to that are more or less uh, depleting us both physically, mentally, and chemically. I use the analogy of a bucket. The bucket has those neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And these are the balancing chemicals, the homeostatic chemicals that keep us aligned with, uh, with feeling more or less normal. What, what insecurity does, what the over-controlling of life does, it's like a, a poke that pokes holes in the bottom of that bucket. And the more holes that are poked, the more the, the vital balancing chemicals in our brain begin to drip out, drip by drip. So what happens is that the, the normal homeostatic tendencies that will balance us, if there aren't too many holes in that bucket, it, they become overwhelmed. So what happens is that the psyche, the brain, the mind can't keep up with, with the depletion that's taking place through trying to control life, through the stress of trying to control life. And we've wind up in a depleted state, which is why medication works, because it, it's the artificial way of rebalancing those chemicals. So I understand your analogy and everything, but how does this happen? Like, What, what would be an example of when this has literally happened to you or you've seen it happen to someone else? Like, How does it start? Okay. How does it get to its nadir? And then how do people come out of it? Okay, well, well, the way it happens is that the insecurity drives the need to control, to over-control life, and we develop controlling strategies. And it is the stress that accompanies the controlling strategy. Stress is really the, the motor behind what brings us down, what causes the depletion in, of the chemicals in our brain. So the, the habituated patterns of trying to over-control life create ongoing stress and duress. It's not natural. Think of it as a juggler. And we're juggling all these controlling strategies, but lactic acid will build up in the, in the arms as you juggle and juggle. And eventually the controlling strategy begins to just derail itself and start to fall. Those are the onsets of anxiety and depression. When our controlling strategies are working and the juggle is going on and we haven't reached a, plate of, a place of depletion, we go on and we handle life. But once, once the juggle starts to fail us, that's usually the onset of where we begin to experience anxiety and depression. Up until that point, it may be just experienced as stress or duress. So what, what are some, can you characterize when someone's in a rut and are there different kinds of ruts? 
of different depths or different types? Well, everything, I, I, I look at everything in life on a continuum. And, you know, whether it be a continuum of, uh, you know, depression from just uh, just sadness to moodiness to, you know, profound and dark depression and suicidal ideation, you know, where you find yourself on that on that continuum, whether it be anxiety, depression or moodiness or just dysfunctionality, it, it really depends on really how much you have allowed your thinking to distort your perceptions of reality. And, and by that, what I mean is that once you start to give up on yourself and believe that you are not that you don't have any power that you're feeling powerless that's that's when you you start to really find yourself in these ruts because essentially without self trust see that's in my self coaching philosophy the the end game is self trust when you lose self trust you rely on controlling life because there's no other game in time in town rather so if you can't trust your own resourcefulness to handle life, then you have to compensate. And it's in the compensation that we bring on the stress. And then when I say the end game is self-trust, take, for example, someone who has developed that self-trust muscle and think of it as a muscle. That person doesn't have to get into the worrisome, anticipatory anxiety of life because they say, hey, you know, what's coming around that corner, whatever it is, I've handled 1,000, 10,000, 20,000 problems in my life. What makes me think I won't handle the next one? The insecure person, however, says, yes, but there's never that adequate self-trust to ward off the, you know, the feelings that we are, you know, not capable or empowered enough to handle what comes our way. So without self-trust, we are back in a vulnerable state. We are in a stressful state, and we are trying to fend off the slings and arrows of life by trying to control rather than handle them from a place of self-trust. I guess I have my own example with sleep. So sometimes, you know, it's hard to fall asleep. And I've told myself, you know, I'm 46. I've told myself, look, you've, you've been falling asleep for 40-some years. Why would you stop now? And that kind of helps. Yeah. I guess that's maybe like a positive version of you can do it. Yeah, and, and it's true. It's just that we, you know, it's always the yes, but. Someone that is caught in an anxiety or depression, you know, as much as they may hear the logic of self-coaching, for example, and realize that uh, it makes perfect sense and they can look at their life and, and, and realize even the implications of why that insecurity is still rooted in their present. There's always that yes, but. And the reason is because truth doesn't always set you free. I mean, I mean, as obvious as that may sound, you know, just by getting at why something started, for example, a cigarette smoker doesn't have to know why they took that first cigarette. We've got to break the habit that has ensued. So that's why, you know, the Freudian, the traditional, you know, getting back and dissecting the, the past ad nauseum, we may get to the roots of how this habit and these habits have ensued and got established in the first place. But just knowing that doesn't change the fact that now you are habituated in this patterning and the pattern itself is where, where the, the work has to take place. And that's the direct work of reframing the way we think, approaching things differently and more aggressively and really just grabbing yourself sometimes. And, you know, sometimes I, I always love the mantra, stop it, drop it, you know, just get on yourself. But you've got to do that by distinguishing between emotional facts and emotional fictions. Uh, truth versus emotional fictions is a good way to start. You know, what's going through my mind right now? Is it a, a fact that is irrefutable or is this an emotional fiction? Is it one of my doubts, my fears, my negatives? And if it's an emotional fiction, 
then you've got to do something about that. And you've got to confront that. I use the term child reflex. Most of these habits are laid down when we are young and pre-adolescent and younger. And if you look at the thoughts that plague you, the thoughts that trip you up, they have a childlike quality. Oh, I can't handle that. What will happen? And you see, it really is of the child when these things were first laid down. And our thoughts become very childlike when we get into a place of powerlessness and fear. And we start to look at life as a place that is just nothing but torment. So the child reflex, and it's a reflex is something that's just below that consciousness. So it's more reflex reflexive. And once we make them conscious, separating facts from emotional fictions, that's the first step, is we start to get in touch with the fact that there's really this kind of two parts to us. There's the healthy here and now part that when not challenged, we do just fine. But then there's this kind of neurotic part that comes from that reflexive, habituated child, or not even necessarily the child, but the, you know, the historical there is that that reflex that trips us up. That's the yes, but I can't. And what happens? And so once you start learning to hear the difference in what's going through your mind, you could start to make that differentiation. And that's a really great place to begin, because that's the place where we realize we have choice. Up until that point, you're victimized by your own mind. Once you realize that the mind is really kind of, you know, not in a schizoid sense, but there are two parts. There's that neurotic mind that comes more reflexively and just overruns if there isn't enough self-trust. It will overrun our consciousness and really leave us scurrying to just try to hang on. There's no sense of empowerment. But once you realize and are able to catch yourself giving yourself up to that part of you, you have, a, you have the beginning of the possibility of saying no to that. Well, from the interviews I've done and from personal experience seeing it, when someone's anxious or depressed, and I've been anxious, I've been depressed, luckily not chronically, uh, you got voices in your head and some people telling them, like the devil on their shoulder, essentially whispering in their ear. Yeah. You have the emotion that makes it hard to do anything. I mean, I, for some reason, it seems like depression is debilitating where you don't want to do anything. And anxiety is debilitating because you're afraid to do anything. And you just don't even know what, you know, literally to sit or stand or any of that. So telling people to or suggesting they think this way or think that way, or just look at the thought as like maybe a third party in front of you. I mean, how do you take the edge off is what I'm saying. So you mm -hmm. can think instead of just being in like ah freak out mode it is very critical and, and really i think it's important to understand that i always use the the analogy of circuit breakers anxiety what we try to when we're feeling unsafe when we're feeling challenged in a sense where we're vulnerable and we want to compensate by controlling life with, with a circuit breaker if if the circuit breaker starts to heat up you, with anxiety you throw in a bigger circuit circuit breaker so now you can throw more energy into it and then the electric keeps building you throw in another circuit breaker even larger so you're keeping upping the ante you know you keep you keep relying on the strategies that are creating and generating more and more of a problem with depression it's just the opposite you know uh, we we really need to recognize that that our thoughts Consciousness is is king. To think that the unconscious, which just stokes consciousness with thoughts and spontaneous ideas, but it's that reflexive part just below the threshold of consciousness that can become conscious. To think that our consciousness needs to be hobbled by reflex. It's it's take for example any anyone with a physical addiction, whether it be cigarettes, heroin, or or anything else. 
the consciousness ultimately is what will win or lose. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by confronting the habitual nature of what's going on. But you need to kind of bring to bear different strategies of consciousness to, to kind of fortify yourself to fight this off. I have strategies that I call engaging, envisioning, uh, all kinds of mental and uh, just, just ways of approaching your thoughts so that you can start to engage yourself in a much more direct and more empowered way. But you do have to enlist the consciousness, which is like a, a laser beam of life in a focused way to really challenge the thoughts that you are just being somewhat kind of not not hesitant, but you just you just are allowing yourself to be plowed over by these thoughts and you become so victimized, you don't realize how weakened you are. So the trust muscle really begins with taking charge. You know, you start small, but but like any habit, you begin if you're a cigarette smoker and you want to break the habit, you've, you've got to formulate a, a mental decision to endure some discomfort. A person that's worrying and you tell someone to stop worrying and they're going to say, yes, but what happens if and what happens if? And I remember I, I told a woman once uh, that she had to stop she had to stop this ruminative cycle that she was on. And she goes, don't tell me worrying doesn't work. Most of the things I've worried about never happen. You know, so people are, they're kind of mired to their neurotic tendencies. And, and in order to break that, you have to first understand the doubts, the fears, the negatives, where they're coming from, and the reflexive pattern of that. And then you need to approach it with the enlightened attitude that these are habits. Am I feeding it or am I starving it? Those are the most Two most important words I say all the time. Are you feeding this habit or are you starving it? It's operant conditioning. If you reinforce it, it's going to go on and it'll go on throughout your life. It'll never leave you unless you start realizing what am I doing that's feeding this? What am I doing that's starving it? And you feed anxiety and depression with doubts, with fears and with negativity. You've got to start being somewhat cognizant and aware of when those thoughts are just you know, taking over your mind. Do you characterize the state someone's in and the severity of it? I feel like there's a, an analogy that I've been, I guess, cooking around in my mind that when someone's either anxious or depressed, maybe more depressed, they're in a hole. And the depth of the hole is kind of governs what's possible. So if someone's real deep down, let's say, you know, zero is surface level, 10 is deep down in the hole. If they're eight, nine, 10, it seems like it would be incredibly difficult to even get through to them. And it is. They would need to do something to help themselves to get up to a level where they could actually like somewhat function and then use techniques to help themselves. But mm -hmm. if they're too deep down, what do they do? Yeah, two things. One, that's where I said earlier that oftentimes with an eight, nine, 10, as you say, depression, that's where medication comes in because it is, as I say, a therapy facilitator. What is important in the way I do therapy is that I need to become catalytic. And, and that's where you need to sometimes take on the energy that's absent in the room. And through my own uh, catalytic optimism and approach, I'm able to offer a way. Now, sometimes it really just takes getting, you know, it, it's almost like if you believe in something, the power of believing in that is, is just so uh, instrumental in moving you that this is what is important. Now, I, I'm not trying to instill, you know, a belief in, in, you know, some deity. What I'm trying to do is lay out a framework, an objective framework that makes common sense. It's very important that we demystify therapy. The heck with going back and dissecting the past. It, it can be illuminating. I'm not dismissing it, but it's not necessary. We don't need to know why that cigarette smoker took that first cigarette. We need to stay present and we need to really develop the common sense of why you're suffering, what you're doing that's feeding it, and what you can do to starve it. 
And then what I do is throw a lot of energy into helping someone realize that they can do this. That's the coaching part. You've got to get someone off of that passivity of feeling victimized and powerless. You've got to get them to be empowered enough to realize, yeah, why not? Uh, You're suffering and you're suffering because you've become part of the suffering. We become identified with our anxiety and depression. Like like the relative I was telling you just the other day, the 70-year-old, he just feels this is his nature. You know, and people have such distorted perceptions of what is. So I feel that I, I, and through the book, hopefully get people to realize they need to approach themselves in a much more uh, assertive and coaching way. You've got to coach yourself into believing that, why couldn't you do this? There's no reason you can't do this. It's a If you could believe it's common sense, if you could lay it out and see it as a common sense approach, then you just got to do what you got to do. And if you do that, if you start chipping away and stop feeding the anxiety, the depression, and we feed it through our strategies of over-controlling life, stop controlling, build the self-trust muscle, begin risking that you can handle life. So you start small, you start to handle small risks, and you start to realize that, hey, uh, that's pretty cool. I just did that without really anticipating how I was going to do it. I just handled it. So little by little, we start to build some confidence. Once the self-trust muscle is adequate, it's like if you get behind the wheel of a car and you say, oh, what if a squirrel runs in front of the car? Should I hit the brake? Should I hit the steering wheel? So you're driving yourself crazy. You're stressing yourself over something that may never happen. The person with self-trust gets behind that wheel and says, might have the same thought. Well, what if a squirrel runs in front? That person says, well, you know, I've got lots of instincts. I'll, I'll trust that I'll just veer or grab the wheel or hit the brake. But they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to tax themselves over it. They have to trust their resourcefulness to handle what comes their way in situ as it happens. Yeah, interesting. So is a lot of your work identifying what a person can call upon so they'll trust themselves more in their decisions and then, you know, training that into them or helping them to train that into themselves so that, you know, the rumination is reduced and the self-doubt is reduced? Well, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Self-doubt is a killer, and you're right. And that's that's part of the uh, protective. That's one of the controlling mechanisms. Uh, doubt tends to hold us back because we don't have the the serenity and security to to take risks sometimes. So we go into a doubtful, hesitant, procrastinating place. And we're just we're always just trying to protect ourselves. This is where it began. This is where it has wound up. We're always just trying to not be vulnerable. That's insecurity. So the truth is trying to get someone to realize that they're not in any danger by trusting and risking trust. See, it, just the opposite is there when you are anxious is you have so little self-trust that you only distrust and, and therefore you only trust over controlling life. So you've lost the fact and you've lost the capacity to realize just, just what just instinctual survival machines we really are. And once you start to recognize that, you know, we're not all just consciousness. Uh, one of the things I'll bring up from my, my Jungian training, Carl Jung said that the ego, the consciousness is like this little island in this vast ocean of potentiality. There's so much more to us once we get out of the, the kind of the confines of trying to control life. Once we start to use our total resourcefulness to handle life, self-trust is much more than just you know, a kind of a, a you know, one-on-one kind of thought. It, it really embraces just all of us from intuition to instinct to, you know, there's just so much more to us once we start to flow with ourselves. 
And in order to sure. do that, you you really do have to get out of your way. When you are trying, you, you can't go north and south at the same time. If you're trying to control life, then you're not building self-trust and you are not re, you're not really unlearning anxiety and depression. And so by neutralizing the feeding process, what we're doing is we're, we're really neutralizing aspects of our own brain anatomy. This is the neuroplasticity of it all. And by neutralizing one part of our brain and reinforcing another, we're actually developing new habit loops within the brain. And the brain is very plastic. And, and this is an important point, Richard, and that is that uh, what, when we say that there's a habit, a habit is really something, not a nothing. It's something in our brain, our anatomy that has now become part of that habit. When we are breaking that habit, we're neutralizing it and we can substitute new and more adaptive habits, but that takes time and that takes practice. And that's why I, I always make sure I emphasize the fact that you're not going to do this in a day or a week. You're not going to play Mozart on the piano if you just go sit down for the first few hours. You've got to practice this because we're actually changing brain anatomy. There was a famous study in, in England where to become a black cab driver, you need to study something like 25,000 landmarks and streets. And it's a two-year process. It's very arduous. And they took some MRIs of the hippocampal area of the brain of the candidates for the, the cab driving license. And at the end of the two-year license period, they reestablished that same MRI and noticed that the hippocampus, an area of the hippocampus dev devoted to navigation, had actually increased in size. The physical anatomy increased through learning. And this is what this is what since 2000, we've learned that the brain actually changes as we learn various strategies, various things. So in order to change your brain, in order to change your mind, in order to change yourself, you have to practice a very direct kind of operant conditioning way of neutralizing the bad, and reinforcing the good. And you need that strategy to help you get there. And you've got to practice, practice, practice. I've heard stories and I've experienced myself, you know, when you're younger, teenager, even younger, someone saying, you know, why'd you do that? That was stupid. Or you're not good at this. Or you know, you're never going to do this, et cetera. And that stuff seems to become ingrained. And then later on, it's very difficult to dig out. I think that kind of seeds the uh, the self-doubt for later on in a lot of people. You are so correct. I spend a lot of, not a lot of time in the book, but I, I mentioned when I was in high school, I, I was sports and girls. And obviously I didn't do very well in school. And my guidance counselor and my mother sat me down with him and said, where should we send Joe to college? He looked at her and then he looked at me and he looked back at me and he said to my, and back to my mother, I should say. And he said to my mother, don't waste your money. So, so I went to college more or less for, for track and uh, for sports, but little by little, I always saw myself as being, you know, not a student. In fact, I would be honest with you and say, I thought I was dumb. I never did well in school, but I never applied myself, but I didn't realize that. I just thought I didn't have it. And, and I tried to hide it, you know, fake it till you make it. And for a long time, I, I felt that inside, even though I was started to do better and better. And by the end of my college career, I was getting A's, but, but I felt that was a sham. And like to what you were saying, the self-doubt was there and it didn't matter how well I did because I knew that was just a sham. That was just because I, I worked at it and I was tenacious. But inside, if anyone knew how inadequate I was and how, how dumb and stupid I was, and, and it took me a long time, all the way up to graduate school. And I mentioned I went to the, the California School 
And we had our own individual analysis and group analysis that was part of the requirement. And in group therapy, I would go in every week and say, you know, yeah, you guys, you know, you're confident and you have all this, but you know, for me, it's not, I just don't. And they would just get on my case and on my case. But little by little, one night I was driving to group and and it just dawned on me. And I know sometimes this happens gradually. For me, it was like a thunderbolt. And I realized there really, there was nothing stopping me from feeling okay. It was like the clouds parted. You know, wh- why am I doing this at this point? I'm, I'm very successful. I've been very successful at school. Why am I? And there was nothing standing in my way. And it's like, all of a sudden, I realized there was nothing wrong with me. I had been just adhering to an old script over and over for no reason. So that that was able to reach me and really penetrate. I look now at the old uh, Babe Ruth adage that if you could do it, it ain't bragging. And if you can, if you can do it, I, I think you need to embrace it. I wanted to return to medication just for a minute. So the way you're talking about it, that's what takes the edge off. And, you know, if someone's, again, in the deepest recesses or down in the hole of anxiety or depression, uh, the medication you're saying, the role it seems to play is to bring you up enough that you can now employ, you know, psychological techniques and counseling to help yourself and self-talk and all that. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yes. The role you see it has? Yes, I, I think that we become so depleted. Now, sometimes, I mean, I'm, when I work with schizophrenic patients, of course, there there really is, you don't get you don't get to a point where, you know, you can really get into that common sense approach. You, you know, it's, it's really uh, very challenging when you have, you know, something more than just a habituated kind of depression. But typically, and, and I would say in, in the vast majority of anxiety and depression, you're dealing with the the patterning that has depleted and depletes your resources on in such a daily basis that we just can't recover. And the depressiveness or anxiety just seems to grow deeper because what happens with any habit is that the, you know, the, the longer you stress yourself, you know, the, the more it grows. And so, yeah, so to answer your question, I think that what, when you when you take you know got one of the antidepressants for example let's take it started with Prozac and there's there's just a whole array of different possibilities now the SSRIs SNRIs and what what happens is that you bring about an artificial balance you know we stop the chemical absorption of these these neurotransmitters so that we could build up that that bucket full of of uh, you know balancing uh, hormones. And so medication fills up that bucket and therefore you have a sense of balance again. You, you have a sense of just being not out of balance. Now, sometimes it takes away the peak and the, and the, and the low troughs of life and, and there is a little bit of an artificial, an artificial feeling. But for most people, what I see is that it, it really gives them a level playing field. So that, that's succinctly how I see medication. It levels the playing field for you to, to embrace a cognitive approach to handling your life. I don't know if uh, any psychiatrist or anyone talks about uh, medication and what its role should be. I mean, I, you know, I don't I haven't been in every session with everyone, but it just seems like psychiatrists are like, here, take this. They don't tell you how you should take it, when you should take it, what it's used for, what do you need to do besides that. They don't future pace and say like, over time, this will take the edge off and then you can do this, that, and the other to help yourself. They're just like, here. And it just seems like... um you know, you're on this forever now. Goodbye. You know, that's like, like, what do you observe? Well, sadly, I don't disagree. I I think that, you know, I try to educate people to at least one very important fact, and that is that one size doesn't fit all. I mean, most people are astonished to find out that they take an antidepressant and it doesn't work. 
or that they have to take now two different medications, a tricyclic and an SSRI, and, and then maybe they're taking clonopin to help them sleep. And, you know, they, they just they just never were prepared for the fact that, you know, psychiatry is trial and error. It really is. I mean, it's informed trial and error, of course, but uh, it really is trial and error. And you have to try various cocktails. So, you know, it, it's not a simplistic thing to just start taking medication. But but I do think that people people are kind of naive when they first start out to think that that the pill isn't going to really just just make everything go away. And and I think it's for a lot of people you just mentioned, if I'm working with someone, when I first do an intake with someone or the first couple of sessions, and I say, look, you know, you're, you're really not getting ahead of this depression, it's really, you know, it's really interfering with your capacity to really try to go forward with therapy, I think you should consider medication once once you, you mention medication, it takes all the air out of the room, what I'm not normal, I need medication. You know, and it's important for people to realize that it doesn't mean you're abnormal. It doesn't mean anything other than you're in a depleted state. So I, I think, unfortunately, it's the same thing when you give a label to someone. You do that for insurance purposes. And once you label someone, it has such a profound effect. You know, it's, oh, my God, I'm the, you know, now I'm this. I'm, I've got major depression. And you know, it, it takes away the power that we're looking for, the empowered feeling of taking charge. And it makes you feel victimized. So I always find ways to try to remove that victimized reaction we have to psychiatry, psychology, labels, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when someone needs medication. Some people refuse it even when, I shouldn't say need, when uh, someone can benefit from medication, some people will, will refuse that just on the basis of their, their predilection of what medication means to them. And that's fine. Uh, I, still, I still try to work with that. But again, it's not a level playing field. So it's a lot harder. And someone has to be really intent on really working, you know, to eliminate the doubts, the fears, the negatives, the stressors that keep depleting. And and that's why it's important to realize that, as I said earlier, you can't go north and south. If you're suffering from depression, don't want medication, well, then you have to find a way to stop feeding the depressive thoughts that contribute to that depletion. Well, very good. Joseph, I, I really like how you've analyzed, you know, various aspects of, uh, of psychotherapy that I haven't thought about. And I think listeners will find it very useful. Where can they find out more about you and where can they get their book? Let me just restate the title, if you would, and you know sure. where can they find out more about your work? Well, my website is uh, selfcoaching.net, N-E-T, and I do a self-coaching podcast each week. And the book is available on Amazon. It's uh, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, four step, the four self-coaching steps to reclaim your life. Okay, very good. And are you still taking patients, or the best way is to interact through your books? Like, what's your overall recommendation? Well, I could be reached through my, my website. I, I do st still see patients. Uh, I have a limited availability at this point since I'm more moving towards semi-retirement and astronomy and all good things like that. But no, I'm still working. So thank you. Well, excellent. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really good call. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.